friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. series called Encounters with Jesus. So we want to see what happens when people encounter Jesus. Um, So if you've got your Bible or you want to grab one in the pew, you can open up to Luke 4. Luke 4 verse 1. Our encounter this morning is an interesting one. It's an encounter between Jesus and Satan. And so we want to dig in this morning and read this text and ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and teach us this morning about um, what's happening here in this encounter, Uh, both who Jesus is, what is Satan all about, and and what's, you know, the game plan of our enemy um, in terms of his relationship to believers, what he's trying to do um, in our lives. So, Luke... Put it up on the screen. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. It's interesting to me, just as we pause, just before we go any further, that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit heading into the wilderness. You know, like God's desire for us is to be full of the Holy Spirit anytime we encounter trial, tribulation, testing. That's not always the case, but that's God's design. That's his plan, is that we would encounter this resistance from the enemy having been filled and having been led, right? And so this is how Jesus is an example for us. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. He eats nothing through these days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, I love Luke. Luke's like Captain Obvious. He had need for, just so you guys know, he was hungry, in case you wondered what it feels like to not eat for 40 days. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil shows up. And what's fascinating to me in this text, and this is just kind of like a free observation. This isn't part of the sermon, really. But I found it fascinating that when Satan shows up to Jesus, there's no trickery in it. He can't actually trick Jesus, so he has to show up in his full, like, Jesus knows who he is. When Satan shows up in our life, there's all sorts of things, the New Testament, he, he can come as an angel masqueraded in life, he's like a, like a sheep, uh, or like a wolf in sheep's clothing, but with Jesus, there's no way he can get anything by Jesus, so he just has to show up with these temptations and declare kind of like what he wants to do in exchange. It's just a really fascinating point about who Jesus is. Jesus answers him. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
And Satan then took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Isn't it interesting? So Satan changes tactics. He's like, oh, you're going to use God's word. I know God's word too. Let me see if I can use that against you. Satan says, it's written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's a fascinating story of Jesus and Satan. I think the first thing that I just want to get our minds around is that we live in this life with an enemy. Like there is an enemy of your soul and the Bible gives him a name. It's a personified force and his name is Satan. And uh, we have a, a friend, John Tyson, said this one time. He said, if you don't have a personified version of evil, right? If there's not a person who is evil, who is coming against you, what you will do is you'll turn human beings into your enemies. You'll make flesh and blood your enemy if you don't believe in, in, a, in a person who personifies evil. And I think that's fascinating. We live in the day and age where people have stopped believing in Satan. And that would be Satan's greatest trick, wouldn't it be? Like, for you to believe he doesn't exist and turn other human beings into the enemy. But the New Testament says, if it has flesh and blood, right, it's not our enemy. So our enemy, actually Satan, we have an enemy in this world, which means, and he says it in this text, he says, this thing has been delivered to me. This authority on the earth has been delivered to me. And you go, well, how's it been delivered? Through sin. Adam and Eve literally delivered their authority that God had given them to have dominion in the world and to subdue it. They delivered it to Satan when they took the fruit. And Satan has a, a scope of power in the world, which means that we live now in contested space. Like, so this, this is the key for Christians, because sometimes I think Christians don't have the right view of what's actually real in this world, that we actually live behind enemy lines. Like, we're, we're in a war that's actively going. Have you guys ever just watched, uh, watched the news to see what it's like for people living in war zones? Right? Like, you can't walk outside. Right? You've got to be super careful. We, uh, we've got our friends, uh, the Caldwells are coming next, uh, next Sunday from Lebanon. They're going to share. If you've watched what's going on in Lebanon, watch this week of a shooting on the street. There's stops everywhere. It's just crazy. You, you live differently when you're living in contested space. And the easiest people to get picked off are the people who live in a war zone as if they're in peacetime. And I think as Christians, we have to just be aware that we live in the world where we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy every good thing that God has made. Everything he's done in us, everything he's done for us. Now, this doesn't mean we live in fear. It just means we live in reality. We live with the knowledge that this is true. Jesus lived with this knowledge. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus answers Satan with God's own world. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Satan tempts Jesus. And, and so I think what I want to do is, is find uh, both like a little bit of the game plan here. What is Satan doing when he tempts Jesus so that we can recognize temptation when it comes to us? What is, G what is Satan doing in the midst of this testing so he's testing Jesus, and what he's really tempting Jesus to do is to test God. Um, and he's taking him into this place of tribulation, of trial. This is a trial, 
right? A 40-day trial to see, can you survive when I throw everything in the kitchen sink at you? Satan tempts Jesus, and, and thus, in this temptation, he's actually challenging God. But Satan never challenges God directly. He's always going, he's always in, he's in the end around. He's subtle, and he's clever, right? And so he, he's giving him these temptations when he's really after something else. What are, what are the three temptations? It's really fascinating, and, and there's probably multiple ways you could look at this. This is just the way... I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me this week to talk about this idea. The first one, he says, hey, you're in the desert. You're hungry. You're the son of God. I know who you are. This is really fascinating. He's like, I know you. Other people may not know you, but Satan, he's like, I know who you are. I know what you can do. I know you were there at the beginning with God. You were the word of God. You are God. You can look at that stone and say, become bread. And it'll become bread in a moment. And the temptation in there is basically this idea of provision. So what's the question behind the question? The question is basically, you're out here hungry, yet you can turn stones into bread. Who is God that he would send you out here and let you go hungry? If you are the son of God, just provide for yourself. It's this idea of provision. And I I think we get into places in life where we wonder about the provision for our lives. And it's this core question that that I think is underlying this, is will I be taken care of? I think this is a core thing in our life that Satan wants to attack, is the idea that will I be taken care of? And if I won't, what's the choice? Then I need to care for myself. I gotta take over, I gotta fix this. If If I could turn a stone into bread, how many times, you guys, if we had supernatural powers, you know what we would have? We'd have everything because we would just be like, yeah, yeah, bread, 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 bread. You, you want some bread? I'd just be like handing it out. And yet Jesus looks at this and goes, that doesn't solve the real problem. Jesus is always and only concerned with the real problems in this world. He sees that I could feed myself in the desert. It, it wouldn't fix the problem. It wouldn't be the right answer to this question. Will I be taken care of? which is fascinating. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying the answer to your deepest questions can't be answered in circumstantial responses. Who God is cannot be answered in whether you're hungry or not. Right? Because when you do that, you get to the point where you now are testing God, you now are questioning God, which means you actually have put yourself to judge the judge. You're like, hey God, if you don't make this stone into a bread... I'm going to say you're not good. You're not going to take care of me, which gives me then the right to take care of myself. Jesus looks at Satan and goes, no, 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 this isn't actually about bread. This is about me and my father. And we don't let anyone get in between us. We don't fall for little tricks like this. I'm hungry, yeah, but I've got other food. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine these, these points in our lives when we question, will God take care of me? And you could look Satan in the eye and go, listen, I've got stuff you don't even know about. I've got history with Jesus and how he's cared for me that I will never question whether I'll be taken care of. I'll never question it. The second one we see is we see this this idea, sorry, I missed the slides. I'm terrible. This is why I don't do slides most of the time. I just forget about them. Uh, It's killing Kevin. He's like, what are you doing? Public speaker. Possessions. Possessions. 
You see this thing where he, he goes up, and what does he offer him? He's like, okay, if I can't get you with bread, the basics, maybe I can get you on the big scale. All of this stuff, all of the possessions and the power that comes with it can be yours. Isn't that interesting? It's not just about possessions so that you live in a, in a house with all the stuff. It's the power that comes through the possessions. If you possess all these things, guess what you have in the world? You have power to do what you want, when you want, and get what you want whenever you want it. And Satan offers this to Jesus, this worldly kingship. He says, you're a king in heaven, but look what that means for you. You're in the desert, hungry, possessionless. Look what I can do for you. I can give you all these things. Jesus, it's really interesting, this, this thing that Satan throws at him. And I think the question behind this for us this morning is, will I have enough? Like possessions, will I have enough? Like one, will, will I be taken care of? Will I have the basics? And then we're like, yeah, but my life and I'm a human being and God put this desire in us to have dominion and to subdue and to expand and to create and all these things. Will I have enough? Or the second question is, is what I already have enough? And the question in that is, if I feel like I don't have enough right now, what does that make of God? And so we start to judge God based on where we rank on some kind of scale, right? And it's really fascinating, because this has really changed in the last 40 years. The amount of wealth in the United States has radically changed. I don't know how, I'm an 80s kid. I grew up in a small town where basically everyone had about the same amount of money. And it was just kind of like, I just didn't think about things and you drove everywhere. We were two hours from the nearest airport. So even to fly, we had to drive a long way. Anybody grow up that way or just like, huh? So then you're like, well, we might as well drive the extra six hours. And then, but nobody had money to fly, right? Like I, I flew one time before I was 17. That was it. We drove, man. My dad's like a zombie driver. Anybody have one of those dads? You'd wake up and you're just like, I think he's okay. I think we're safe. I don't know. You know, but you're, you're just like, it's this fascinating thing. Like, will I have enough or do I have enough currently? And I think the interesting thing to the answer to that question is, um, do I have enough is, well, what do you want? Because if what you want are possessions and power, then you'll never have enough. But if what you want is Jesus and the freedom and peace he brings, you already have enough. It's just a question of have you given that thing the full picture, like your full vision to say, look at what I have. So Paul says, listen, we're persecuted. We're perplexed. We're pressed down and yet... Like, we're victorious. I have everything. All the things I thought was a win, now I consider a loss because of the surpassing worth of what I possess in him. That's why most of us could say most of the happiest people we've ever known weren't wealthy. They weren't powerful. They didn't have a lot of stuff. When I think of the happiest people I can think of, I think of old ladies I grew up with in southwest Kansas who lived in little farmhouses and had no possessions, and yet they possessed Jesus. And these ladies would weep and laugh and sing and serve and love people all the time, all day. Like you're just little kids. You're just like, oh. And you're just like, this lady's got nothing. 
amen. Will I have enough or is what I have enough? And the last one is really interesting too, which I think is about protection. He says, cast yourself off of this and see if God will save you. Right, so you have like basic needs and then you have the big picture and then you have in the middle of it all, can I trust God to keep me safe? But the interesting thing about this question is this question only has to do mostly with our physical being. Will, will God keep me safe? Will he rescue me from death? Will he deliver me from pain? And the idea is that if you jumped off that thing and God didn't rescue you, somehow there's something about God that's wrong. And yet, again, it, it takes this like narrowing of vision for that to be the question. Is my life about my physical safety that I never get sick? I never have an illness that I can't overcome. I never, you know what I mean? I, I don't have anything wrong with my physical being. I, I just like, this last week in our, our little class at OCS, we had a death of, of a mom, healthy and vibrant, all this. It just, and it just shakes you up. Because it just puts you into the reality that you cannot protect yourself from certain things. Right? You just cannot predict. The Bible says that the, the number of your days are known by God. He knows and you don't know. And he doesn't offer that information to us because I think he knows we'd obsess about it if we did. And it's interesting because then it says, um, am I safe then determines the amount of risk I'm willing to take. So if I'm not safe, then what I usually do is I pull back and I start to risk less and I start to wonder about, you know, and then, because what does Satan want? He wants you to believe that you're not safe or he wants you to taste, test God's goodness in your safety. <laughs> he either wants you to be like overly risky or have no risk at all. He never wants you in this spot in the middle where you're being wise but also having risk, <laughs> right? Like he, he just, he wants to trick you Jesus says, you don't put God to the test. And this is really interesting, because what is this about? He's like, you don't put God to the test about your life and how it goes. You know what I mean? Like this, this, what happens in your life, because we live in a fallen world with an enemy who prowls around, we aren't able to look at our life and all the things that have happened to us and all the things that we've done and get to make a judgment on God based on our small life. Because what happens is we're way more likely to overemphasize uh, the negative th things in our life and underemphasize the goodness. We discount the miracle of our life. The very fact that you're alive and breathing right now, we kind of take that as a given when you're like, wait, hold up. Do you realize what it took to get you here? The miracle it is for a human baby to be conceived and to live inside of a person and then to be born healthy and then to live and grow and learn language and skills and do all these things and have hopes and dreams and relationships. Like the miracle, you could never take all the stuff of the world against the miracle of life and think it adds up to much of anything. That's why Paul says, like, these, these um, temporary problems I'm having, 
don't compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. These, these momentary afflictions. And friends, I can just tell you, in the grand scheme of eternity, when your life gets told, the worst thing that has ever happened to you will look like a momentary affliction when you're with God. Now, if God doesn't exist and the resurrection isn't true and heaven isn't real, then yes, oh, our pain and our suffering is monumental. It's hard to even conceptualize. But if God is real, the resurrection is true. <laughs> Jesus is alive and we'll live forever with him. We'll, we have to perceive our existence in relationship to that. So Jesus looks and says, I'm not going to test God. I see all of history. I was there from the beginning. I know where we're going. All of this, right? This provision and possessions and protection. And, and, and I promise you right now, even in your own heart, you know which of these you're like, oh, that's the one. Uh, safety. That's the one I struggle with my kids. Amen, parents? I'm just like, we sent our girls to camp for the first time. That is the most stressful thing I've ever done. Because I can't protect them if I'm not there. Right? But if, even if I'm there, can I really protect them? Not in the way I want to. The only way to protect them would be to like put them in a cage and keep them in a room and never let them go anywhere or meet anyone. And isn't it interesting that in our human version of protection, it actually ends up being violence to people. It ends up being a, a form of abuse. To try to overly protect someone from the world doesn't work. It doesn't work. It might be possessions. You're like, oh, this is it. Am I going to have enough? Is God going to take care of me? I grew up in poverty. My parents declared bankruptcy. It was just one thing after another. Evictions and all this stuff. I don't... And so our, our, your life is like, can I hold on to what I have? And can I get more? And can I hold on to the more that I get? And make sure I never lose anything. I have to have enough. I have to know, right? Satan wants Jesus and you to doubt God, reject God, and accuse God. But it's really interesting because I think, I asked the question as I read this text and I prayed over it this week, I was like, but what is Satan really after? What's he really after? Because did he really think Jesus was going to reject God? Satan's pretty smart. Like, and, and maybe you're like, oh, well, his pride was his fall. So maybe he's so prideful, he thought, I got this, I'm going to get Jesus. But I don't, I don't know that that's what he really thought. And it made me think, like, what's the real prize in this situation for Satan? Because I don't think he thought he was going to get Jesus to reject God. I think all of these temptations, all these tests, um, and it's interesting because the tests are to place God in the position of a genie who, who grants wishes. Not a holy, all-powerful, all-loving being who created you. It's like, hey, rub the lamp and ask God for something. And if he doesn't give it to you, he's not good. I mean, you think it's like, so what is Satan after? And this is the question for your life, I think, in my life. What is Satan actually after? And here's what I think it is. And it's interesting because it happened in the chapter before. 
It says, now when all these people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. I don't even know what that means, guys. There's a dove. Some people are like, it was a dove. I don't know. I guess it was, it says like a dove. So maybe I, I should have kept reading. <laughs> what kind of, what kind of dove though does the Holy Spirit look like? Like, was it a big dove? Giant? It's crazy. I would have, I've never thought about that. Like the bodily form. It's like, like a dove. So what does that mean? I don't know. A, a Holy Spirit dove floated out of heaven. Landing on Jesus. And a voice came from heaven. Listen to what he says. You are my son. My beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is what I think Satan is really after with Jesus. And I think it's what he's after with you. He, his goal, his ultimate prize, is to shatter your belovedness in God. That is the prize. Does God love me? And is he delighted in me? Or does God just put up with me because he happened to make a mistake in creating me and now he's stuck with me? And he's just disappointed with me all the time. Right? Satan, in his temptations, in your life, in your testing and in your trials, he is subtly and slowly chipping away at your belovedness. Why? Because he knows that God forgives sin. He's not really that worried about making you sin. Friends, we sin because we have sinful natures. Satan's just like, actually, if you sin a bunch, C.S. Lewis, the great screw tape letters, he's like, listen, as you tempt human beings, don't get them to be radical sinners, because if they are, they might turn to the mercy of God and go back. He's like, we want them apathetic and judgmental and questioning God's goodness and thinking they're smarter. And all this that's fascinating, but it's like Satan is chipping away and, and here's the basis of kind of this statement. I just want you to hear this because I struggle with this and I, and I bet this is common human experience. And this thing is as we question God's provision, the possessions, the protection, it's that there's some other way your life could have gone that would show God's love and goodness. It's like there was another life on offer that God was either not good enough to give you or you weren't good enough to get it. And he wants you to dwell in that place of feeling like if I had just done this or avoided that or if God were better, if you were really good, he would have never let me do this, have that happen And so we start to wonder, if God loved me, he would never let me be hungry. But he let Jesus be hungry. So what you end up doing, it's fascinating, is that you're not really accusing God of not loving you. In some ways, you're accusing God of not loving his own son. Well, if God really loved Jesus, why would he let him go into the desert and have a showdown, like cage match with Satan? Why would you do that to your son if you're good? If God loved me, he would never ask me to be poor. Well, what about Jesus? Jesus owned no possessions. He never had a home. 
He couldn't even pay the temple tax. He had to catch a fish. He had to like create a miracle to pay his taxes. Anybody else been there? Been there before? Lord, send the fish. If God loved me, he'd never let me be in danger. He'd protect me at all costs, in all places, in all ways, which would mean you would never die. Right? Everyone goes to, wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Christians don't fear death. Even catastrophic, awful, traumatic, too soon death, we're not afraid of it. Because we don't put our hope in this life. We don't say this life is so good, I never want to leave it. We say, no, 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 God, we'll live here as long as you want us to, do all the things you ask us to, but we're hoping for heaven. Our hope is in you. If God loved me, if God loved you, he would have never allowed your abuse or your divorce or your betrayal of friendship or your financial hardship or your childhood or your loneliness or your anxiety or your confusion, your doubt or your addiction or your sin. And then as we get there, we say, if God doesn't love me and he's not delighted in me, then I have to make my own plans. Right? I've got to just take care of it. I've got to gut it out. And so what we do is we walk off into the wilderness, not full of the Holy Spirit, but empty, trusting ourselves. And that never goes well. And as I, I think about this, right, like if God really loves you, but I think about this idea of the signal and the noise. They talk about this in studies. As they study human beings and as they ask questions and they do research, they're like, there's the signal and the noise and you've got to eliminate the noise so you can capture the signal. And here's what I think about temptation and testing and trial. The noise is all the stuff. It's all the stuff that's getting thrown at you. It's all of your junk and it's all of your sin. It's all of your mistakes, all of your failures, all the things that people have done to you. But the signal is this. The signal is anything that makes you doubt your belovedness. That's what you have to pay attention to. It's not that you're going through temptation. All are tempted, right? It's not that you're going through testing or trial or tribulation. It's, it's so many people. And it's really weird because you never really know how many people are going through what you're going through until you go through it. I never knew how many people had lost their spouse until I lost my spouse. And then it was like out of the woodwork so many widowers and widows were like, me too. And I was like, what? I'm not alone? Yeah. Anything that makes you doubt your belovedness in God and his delight in you, friends, comes from Satan. <laughs> That's who it comes from. And this isn't about godly sorrow about your sin. It's okay to feel bad <laughs> if you do something wrong. But your wrong and your sin and your failures and your mistakes never reduces your belovedness. You cannot increase it and you cannot decrease it by anything you do or by anything that is done to you. You can live the most defiled life the world has ever seen and God would look on you as lovely and desirable. He takes the worst sinners and he goes, ah, we talked about it last week. This is going to be the one who loves me the most. God, he doesn't love sinners because he can clean them up. He loves them because they belong to him. In the same way that every parent in this room who's had a prodigal child, you never once question.
questioned your love for that child. Never once were you like, oh, I don't know if I love them anymore. No, you're literally like, how much more blood could I spill for this kid? Because I would do anything it took to bring them home. And you prayed those prayers like, God, whatever it takes, take my life. Just take me. I'll go. Just bring them home. <laughs> That's who God is. Which tells us that overcoming temptation and testing and trials isn't about willpower or mental toughness or self-righteousness. It's not even about your ability to quote the Bible. Jesus does that, but that's not a secret thing. You should quote the Bible, but if you quote the Bible, but you don't know that you're loved by God, guess what? You're just doing, you're like spinning your wheels. Here's what it's about. Overcoming temptation and testing and trials is about your ability to tap into the reality of the never-ending belovedness and delight that you possess in God right now. In this moment, right now, you have everything God has for you. It's yours. He says every spiritual blessing in Christ is yours. The question is, are you just, yes, yes, I agree, I agree, it's mine, it's mine. I think this is the living water that Jesus talks about. That living water in us, I think, is his love. Our ability to know and understand that we are so loved by God that we'd never have to do anything more to earn it, and that there's nothing we could do to lose it. That's even more important. There's never been a moment of your life that you've been loved less by God. Never. Which also means that the person sitting next to you, that's true of them as well. <laughs> There's never been a moment that God's not just like, I would die for that person next to you. Not only would he, he did. I'm going to invite the band back up. And I want to spend some time um, praying through this. And... Um, I'm going to read a couple of texts and then we're going to spend some time praying through these texts. And I, I think it's interesting that, that Jesus walked out of the desert. He walked in full of the Holy Spirit. He walked out in the power of the Spirit. And it made me like make this connection. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit is to have a full awareness of how loved you are by God and how delighted he is in you. And that fills you up to the point that you're like, I'm, I've got like superhuman. I can do anything. If I know that God loves me, and he, he doesn't just love me begrudgingly, he's like, with whom I am well pleased, the one I delight in. I don't just love you because I have to, I delight in you. You're my joy. You're the apple of my eye. You're the one I long for. I love you. I love being around you, and I like you. I love this text um, from Isaiah 43. It says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. All these things are true, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is. I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Listen to the value. He's like, entire nations, I just... 
is how much I love you. Kush and Seba in, in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that exists in this creation that could separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. There's no kryptonite in this world for you and God. You are secure in him. He loves you. I'm going to read this quote. I love this quote. Grace, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades. When despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice were saying, You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. And last but not least, Brennan Manning, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ. I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means at the deepest part of you, you have an awareness that you are loved by God. Not because you earned it or you deserve it or you do things right, but because that's who God is. He loves human beings. So I want you to stand to your feet. I'm going to invite the prayer team up. I want you to just close your eyes for a second. And we're just going to spend a, a moment in prayer. And, and if you feel comfortable, you just open your hands to, to God, to the Father. Just open your hands. It's just a posture of receiving. an acknowledgement this morning that God wants to give us something. This thing that like I've got my arms out ready to hold something. And I want to read this text again from Isaiah because I think you need to hear it in the first person. And I'm going to read it slowly so that you can put your name there and you can hear this directly to you. He who created you, O Jacob. Put your name there. He who created you formed you, O Israel. 
promises to you this morning. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. this morning is that he will be with you. You will not be overwhelmed and you will not be consumed. Whatever is coming against your life, whatever is tempting you, whatever sin pattern you cannot get past, God says this is not the end of the story. It's not the end. For I am the Lord your God. He's your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He would give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you, my friend, are precious in his eyes. Would you say that in your heart? Say, I am precious in God's eyes. Precious in God's eyes. Not just precious, but he says honored. Friends, right now in heaven amongst a myriad of angels, God the Father, Jesus the Son, all the saints, your name is held in honor in that place. Think about that for a second. All the honor you could ever wish for in this life is is like dust compared to the honor you have in heaven right now by God the Father. And he says this, and I love you. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. Listen to this promise for your children. Everyone in here who has children, I will bring your offspring from the east. You don't have to fear. You don't have to force it. You don't have to worry. I have this. I'll say to the north, give them up. From the west, I will gather them. And he is saying, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Who shall separate you this morning from the love of God and Jesus Christ? Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Friends, not divorce, not uh, addiction, not abuse, not gossip, not betrayal, not fear, not anxiety, not depression. No thing in this creation that could separate you from God. So this morning, with your arms out, would you just tell God, say, God, I receive your love right now. I receive your love. Fill me with your love. Speak your love over my heart right now. Cast out darkness. Cast out fear. Do away with the lies. Would you come and bind up my wounds, Father, with your love, your healing touch this morning? You love me. You love me. You love me. thank you this morning that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your love 
cannot be stopped. Even torture and death could not stop you, God. You went through it all to claim us as your own. We are highly valued. We are the prize. And this morning, I just declare over my life and my friends in this room that we will not allow Satan to steal our belovedness and your delight over us. We will live as people freely loved by God. We will live without condemnation, without judgment, knowing that your love covers a multitude of sins. And we just receive it right now. If you have sin in your life right now, would you just see the love of God covering your sin? like laying a blanket of love over the top of that thing and just saying, I love you. I'm here for you. I will cover everything and more. His grace is inexhaustible for you. You'll never get to the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, So Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, right now, would you pour out the love of Christ in hearts right now? Just pour it out like oil on the head. Would you just pour it over people right now? Would they feel a physical sensation of safety and of warmth, God, of the good kind of fire that you warm us with on the inside as you pour the love of Christ over this room? worshiping from this place. And I just want to invite you, our altars are open. Altars are a great place just to bring whatever you have to God and to say, God, I thank you. I want more. It's a place to worship. It's not just a place where people have problems go. Can we just like clear up that misconception? Altars are for people who want to pray and receive. We have prayer team down front. If there's anything in your spirit that you're like, I want to know the belovedness of God. And yet this thing, friends, we can break every curse. We can heal every wound through the power of Jesus. His blood has claimed that. So if you need prayer, you need help, you need intercession, you're like, I don't know what to do. Don't leave this room before you let somebody pray for you. Let somebody lay hands on you and claim for you what you feel like you can't get for yourself. God can do that through another person's prayer. We've seen it happen over and over and over again. If you have prayer for anything, it doesn't matter what it is, come pray. Don't give up the chance to let somebody pray for you. 